Okay, if you have a Bible, could you please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. If you have a smartphone, please turn with me as well. Acts chapter 6. We are in the the book of Acts, the story of the early church, the first 30 years of the early church found in the book of Acts. And we're still in the first year here at chapter 6. It's a slightly shorter text this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at the first uh, seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Seven men are chosen to serve. We've seen over the past few weeks where the church was formed at uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We saw in chapter 3 a miracle, a layman is healed. And uh, Peter is then allowed to stand up and say, this man was healed because of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4 begins one of three differing types of attempts to halt the momentum of the early church. They halt the momentum of the kingdom of God. The first one is persecution. We see the Sanhedrin mostly made up of a group of men called the Sadducees uh, from the high priestly family um, who persecute the apostles. They're thrown in jail twice at this point, once in chapter 4, once in chapter 5, and they're told, quit preaching, stop. Persecution was an attempt to stop this momentum from the outside. The second one that we see was in the beginning of chapter 5, which was the story of Ananias and Sapphira, compromise, lying, where two people attempted to make themselves look good to all the people in the church. They seek sought to have preeminence for themselves. So there's persecution, there's compromise from within. And the third and final pers- uh, attempt to halt the early church's momentum, we believe in Satan. We do not believe he is as powerful as God, but we believe that he works in ways that are often unseen. We see him working here in division and distraction. Division and distraction. Distraction from the mission of the church and division within the church. Persecution was arguably the easier one to deal with because it comes from outside. The church is incredibly resilient to attacks from the outside. But compromise and then division and distraction are things that come from within, and these are difficulties that the early church had to face. Many people look at the early church and they have this nostalgic view that everything was great and perfect. But here, within a few months, let's say about six months from Pentecost, we're dealing here with division and distraction. They deal with the two. Bad arguments, bad problems. The fact that these things happen should not surprise us. It's just that God's Word tells us how to deal with them. And we see a wonderful solution here to this circumstances. Let's read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 
six. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the phone number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Now, it might not seem like a particularly exciting text, but it's a very necessary and a very helpful text, and we believe all God's word is profitable for us. And this is one that is especially profitable for the church. It should be of no surprise that if the early church struggled with something, we ourselves should potentially struggle with it too. We notice here in the in the first verse it says the word disciple. This is the very first usage of the word disciple in the book of Acts. And the last time you would have seen the word disciple, if you're reading the New Testament, would have been found in the various versions of the Great Commission. Matthew 28 says, Jesus says to his disciples, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and, what? Make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is the first usage of the word disciple. It says the disciples were increasing in number. And what this all serves to help us understand is that the early church, and I've said this repeatedly over the past few weeks, the reason the early church do the things they're doing is because they're seeking to obey that commission. It says they're making disciples. They're baptizing people after sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, and they're teaching them. You don't just baptize them and leave them. You teach them. You proclaim the word. You help them learn about Jesus. A disciple means a follower of Jesus or someone who learns about Jesus. This is someone who's made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And so the early church is being obedient as disciples to their teacher, Jesus, who tells them to go make more disciples. And so, what happens when things start growing, when the church starts growing, when more and more disciples get made? Imagine if you, if you run a business, things start getting harder. If you're one of those people that has lots of children, you start realizing, you start struggling a little bit because things aren't the way they were. You need more car seats, you need more of this, you need more of that. And so it is with the church. More and more and more and more and more people 
come to faith, and they all bring with them their own issues and their own things that cause problems. There's logistical issues here. And it says a complaint was raised by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. First thing we need to know about these two groups is that they're both Christians. They're both Christians. All people here would have spoken Greek. They would have spoken Greek. Basically, everyone in this region would have spoken Greek. But we would have had synagogues, which was the Jewish meeting houses where the word is taught and people belong to individual synagogues throughout Jerusalem. There would have been two main types. The Hellenists would have gone to the Greek-speaking synagogues, and it says the Hebrews would have gone to synagogues that either taught in Aramaic or a dialect of Hebrew. Right? So you had two different types. So we have the Hellenists, which is the Greek, and the Hebrews, which is the Jewish or Aramaic-speaking Jews. Both groups here are Jews, but we've got Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, and the Hebrews are Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jews. Does that make sense? So these two groups, and here is the division. The Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, it says, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We mentioned before that there were many widows in Jerusalem. And what a... What a sensitive issue to deal with. Things were potentially slightly different back then. Slightly different in the way the world worked and the way things operated. And we need to take our minds back to see the, the difficulties that this would have caused, this problem. What a sensitive issue. In Deuteronomy 26, the nation of Israel were told to give of their tithes to the widows. Being widowed is never easy. It is an incredibly difficult thing. But in those days, where much of the financial prosperity went through the man and the land was tied to the man's line, it would have been very hard to earn money. Chance of remarriage was slim. Income was probably zero, and many of the women would have returned to Jerusalem, where there was a higher percentage of Jewish people, and there were synagogues that were tasked with caring for those widows. There was no state welfare. There was no government handout. You cannot get on the dole. There was none of that existing. So many of the widows, as their husbands died, would travel from all around the empire and they would move back to Jerusalem because they would be cared for by the community of faith. This was the responsibility of the synagogue. And now we see it has become the responsibility of the church. We see that connection there between the Old and the New Testaments. Ruth and Naomi are examples of people who when once widowed, they traveled from Moab and they went back to the town where there would have been more believers. 
James chapter 5 verse 1 says, Pure religion is visiting orphans and widows in their distress. This is part of the ethical foundation of the church. It is found in the Old Testament of Scripture. So the early church had on its hand an opportunity, a difficult problem, but they had to care for many of the widows. And what we saw in at the end of chapter 4 of Acts and the beginning of chapter 5, where all these people are selling assets, they're selling houses, they're selling fields, and they're giving their money to the apostles for distribution, the widows would have been a key part of the group that would have received of this money. This is mercy ministry. And this is convicting to me this morning. Mercy ministry is the individual, individuals, you individually, and corporate, the whole church, expression of compassion to relieve human suffering. One of the ways the church loves their neighbor as themselves is by relieving suffering through compassion, either individually or as a whole church. This is something that I, as pastor, I hear about. I hear ways in which people here relieve suffering within the church and those outside, but can we all admit this is potentially something we need to look at doing some more? Is it not? I'm seeing a few nodding heads. The relieving of suffering wherever it may be found. There are no great, huge financial needs within our church. But there are ways in which suffering can be reduced, and that is what mercy ministry is for. There are, I'm hearing growing reports of, and stories all the time of, of people struggling and just simply not having enough food. So what, I will, what I plan to do is uh, have a chat with uh, our deacons. We have two of them now, and talk as elders as well, and how can we potentially be more aware of suffering and how we can help relieve it. We are called to love God and love neighbors ourselves. This might be something as simple as collecting food and giving it to the Open Home Foundation or another organization of that sort. If you have ideas, if you have ideas, this is one of, this is one of those texts that really helps. People say, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing that, we need to be doing this, and I say... As the pastor, great, will you help? Will you put some skin in the game? Will you put your hand in the pocket? Will you give of your time? This is something for us to all consider. So this is the problem here. The Greek-speaking Jews alleged that the, the, the other Hebrews were neglecting the widows in the daily distribution. The daily care for widows, they were saying, the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking ones, this is a language barrier here, the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking widows were being cared for better than the Greek-speaking ones. All the disciples, I mean, the sorry, all the apostles, the twelve, were Jewish men, who would have spoken Aramaic and possibly Hebrew. So that's a very easy way for this dissension to come about. All these apostles who are distributing are part of that group. They're not Greeks. 
So our our Greek speaking Jewish ladies are being treated poorly. We see how this sensitive issue could have caused a problem. Leadership is shown by the apostles. They call all the people together. They call all the people together. The church, the congregation. Who are these people? Those who have been baptized. The disciples. They call all the disciples. They have a meeting. They have a family meeting. The apostles facilitate. This is leadership. They say, we want you to pick seven men. And it says they must be of good repute. They must have good character. They must be full of the Spirit. They must be believers. They demonstrate that they are walking as Christians. And they must have wisdom. They must be able to make wise decisions in this role. And it says you pick, you the church must pick, and we will appoint them. And so it goes. And why the necessity for this? Why did the apostles not simply say, oh, well, we'll, we'll take care of it. We will deal with this problem ourselves. We, we will make sure we give a little bit more of the daily distribution to the Greek-speaking widows. They didn't say that. Because they came to realize that there was a great temptation to distraction from their key role. It says, we, in verse 4, it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That was the apostles' role. The foundation, the founding of the church, and prayer and the ministry of the word. And as we, if we look throughout the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, and I won't go in full depth today, these are also responsibilities specifically given to early church elders. We see in the book of Philippians, in, in right at the start, in verses 1 and 2, Paul speaks to the elders at the church of Philippi. And we see in that a principle that the apostles began as the churches and individual bodies were planted all around the land, that the responsibility was handed to men that had been appointed as elders or overseers of the church. And their role is prayer and the ministry of the word, along with care and protection of the church. The apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And they said, this is our role and we must not be distracted from it. Let's find other people that can handle the distribution of funds and food and land and whatever else to widows. I wanted something stood out to me as I studied this text. And that is, that isn't this a wonderful example of how God sets the agenda for his church? He gives a timeless command that the leadership of churches must devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And a very, even though it is also tied to a command, a very different circumstance here of a large amount of widows that needed caring for. These 
This early church would have been disobeying God if they did not care for widows within their group. God sent these widows to the church. God sent these people to the church. God has set the agenda for this church. Careful people, and I'm sending you in Jerusalem a, a particularly sensitive and, and difficult uh, task of caring for a large number of widows, and I will supply the means to help. Prayer and the ministry of the word. God has set the agenda for the church. This church didn't just get together and decide what they wanted to do. God has set the agenda through the circumstances and through his word. Why then are the apostles called to prayer and the ministry of the word? Briefly, prayer. I want us to see that prayer is mentioned first. Prayer is mentioned first. It makes complete sense to me that as this church is exploding and disciples are being added day by day, that dependence upon God potentially would decrease. Why the need to pray to God to, to sustain His church and grow His church if it's things are blowing up. We can barely keep up with what we have. Prayer is mentioned first that the church as a whole and the leadership would always be giving thanks via prayer, depending upon God in prayer, praying for the needs of the individual people within the church, prayer that disciples would be continually made, prayer that they would rely upon God and his methods and not human wisdom. This week, our elders will meet on Thursday night, and one of the things we will do is we will pray for individuals in the church. As elders, we frequently take each other of individual prayer requests. We must pray for our people. This is one of our key roles. I'm praying up here from the front, not because it's a fuller between songs and, and word. It's because God calls us to pray, to depend upon him and not ourselves. So there's prayer, and then secondly, there is the ministry of the Word. Literally, the teaching, the preaching, the sharing of the Word. And it's the ministry of the Word, and I think that's something such so important as you look at it uh, from the angle of, it's not ultimately about the preacher. It's not ultimately about the person sharing. It's the message that is being shared. I have to remind myself often, I am unimportant. I am just a messenger. I stand up the front and I declare what God has said, not what I think. That is my role. I can be replaced. This cannot This is the key thing that the church must not be distracted from. We see here one of the reasons why they call for these seven men to be chosen is that the apostles may not be distracted from the ministry of the word, the teaching, the preaching of the word, the, the sharing of the word. Everyone has a part to play in that. 
Do you know that you yourself, if you're struggling with reaching out to a friend or a neighbor or someone that may or may not want to know about God, but you've got this burden on your heart to share with them, you know one of the greatest things you can do is grab the Bible and read it with them? That's the ministry of the Word. If I have people come to me for counseling, I believe I haven't done my job if I haven't shared Scripture with them. The ministry of the Word. That's what we're doing right here, right now. This is not simply evangelism, seeking to get people to become converts. This is the sharing of the Word for believers and for people that are not yet believers. I want you to listen to Paul's words. and something that I constantly have to, to wrestle with myself and remind myself of. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Many people, when they think of preaching in the ministry of the Word, they think of 2 Timothy chapter 4. But 1 Timothy chapter 4 says this. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And then he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And listen to this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul tells Timothy, who's a pastor, that he needs to persist in reading the Scriptures out loud. He needs to persist in teaching the Word and preaching the Word and sending the Word out there. It says, for you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so if you're familiar with evangelical speak, you might ask yourself, isn't Timothy saved already? Why does he need to save yourself and your hearers? Isn't Timothy saved already? In a sense, yes. In a sense, no. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for our sins, in our place, the righteous the only man who's ever kept God's law perfectly died in place in the place of those who had broken God's law and done everything to rebel against him. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, showing that God vindicated him and was pleased with his sacrifice. And that Christians, we are, as we are called to continually repent of our sin and believe, put our trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who died in our place, that we might be saved. We call that, in big Christianese words, justification. It's a biblical word found in Romans chapter 3. We are justified. God declares us righteous by faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But from there, what begins happening, we are justified. God views us as righteous in His sight because Jesus was righteous in our place. But from there, what happens is He continually works in us, a continued cycle 
of repenting of sin and continually believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, of continually seeking to live a life of obedience to Him. When we succeed, giving Him thanks. When we disobey and sin, repenting again and believing. And that is the cycle. We are justified, saved, the whole way. But we are continually sanctified over and over and over again until Christ returns where we are told we will one day be glorified, Paul says at the Romans chapter 8. We will receive a sinless body and that will be our eternal state because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. We will receive a body like his that is imperishable. That is the Christian hope made possible ultimately through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says to Timothy, persist in this ministry of the word, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers, he has in view this whole pattern of justification, of sanctification, ongoing and final glorification. We are freed from the penalty of sin the moment we believe. We are gradually freed from the power of sin throughout our life, even though oftentimes it means we are more aware of our sin the longer we are a Christian. We sin less, but we feel worse. And we are finally freed from the presence of sin, and that is full and final salvation. Are you saved now as a Christian? Yes. Are you fully saved? No, but you will be. And so what Paul then means, what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 4, is that it is necessary for the continued hearing of the word, in reading, in teaching, in preaching, that all the people and Timothy, the pastor himself, will be saved. God uses the Word. He uses His Holy Spirit uses the Word to grow us and change us and save us and make us more Christ-like. Which means you and your, everyone else in your household as Christian and me need to hear the Word. You need to read it. You need to hear preaching. It is a means that God uses to grow you, to point you continually to Christ. And therefore, we must never be distracted from this. And if you say to me, this is foolish, that is dumb, why would why preaching? Why not a great video? in high def, well-produced, big, why, why can't we watch that? Or why can't we do something else? Because God has not given that as the means by which we are saved and continually saved. He's given the ministry of the Word. Let it be a priority for you to read and to hear. Let it be a priority for this church and our leadership to continually do this and to make sure the word goes out because God uses his words. The wisdom of God is far greater than the wisdom of man. And so with that, verse 5, we see a commissioning. 
the apostles demonstrated leadership. And it says in verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And the people chose seven men. I'm not going to read their names out. Again, they're right there in Acts chapter 6. They chose seven men. And each one of them has a Greek name. That's interesting. That's one of those things like, you know when someone comes up to you and they, they, they're complaining about something? And you say, all right, well, if you think that's a problem, why didn't you fix it? The church has kind of collectively decided to do that. The Greek-speaking party, the Hellenists, said there's a problem. Well, the whole church, Hellenists and Hebrews, decided to pick Hellenistic men. You fix it. You do this. A wonderful thing. It's a good thing. I want us to see here as in a few weeks' time, I, I don't want to jump the gun here, but as elders, we're going to ask for um, for some uh, nominations for more deacons. And I want us to see here, the people select, the congregation selects, and there's a positive choice in selecting. So often... When we choose pastors, we choose deacons, we choose elders, a lot of churches, they say, this is the person we want. Does anyone have a problem? That's valid. That's valid. But we see here it must be a positive choice. The people must agree to choose. This is a positive choice. I have chosen that man or that woman to serve in that capacity. And then the apostles lay their hands on these people and commission them. Question, are these deacons? Oh, are these deacons? The word diakonos, I don't use Greek words much. The word diakonos for deacon is not found in this text, but the word diakonia is found, and therefore many people believe that this is that these are the first deacons. You can make arguments for and against. But the word diakonia is used for the word distribution, the distribution of funds, but it's also used of the apostles, the diakonia of the word, the ministry of the word. So it's not just simply applied to the seven men, and the need, it is applied to the ministry of the word which the apostles do. Are these deacons? Yes and no. We'll call them proto-deacons. And so what we have chosen to do in accordance with First Timothy chapter 3 is that we have elders who oversee the church and primarily lead through prayer, through the ministry of the word, and for the oversight of the church and protection against error. And then deacons which is the second part of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And deacons serve in the temporal affairs of the church, ministries of mercy, care within the church, and they serve at the discretion of the eldership so that we may not be distracted from our main role. Does that make sense? And there's a wonderful help to me personally when other people step up and help in roles that they're uniquely qualified and gifted to do, but ordinarily I might just find myself doing it. It frees me up to use my own gift. 
And so we're not a greatly sized church, but we benefit via the deacons. We have a deacon who primarily helps as a treasurer, and we have a deacon, um, the wonderful Lorena, who helps in hospitality and, and in many other ways. I am not an accountant. If I had to balance books and pay building fees and, 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 and draw graphs and all those kind of things and track giving, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd lose my mind. But we have a deacon that steps in and helps us all. What a wonderful help that is for the church. Works of service are great things, whatever they may be. And I want us to, to be encouraged this morning by the example of Jesus in John 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and then he tells them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Many people in this church, I'm not just talking deacons, they serve in, in various ways with music and tea and coffee and, and children's church and visitations and and, and organizing of events and, and and administration and and put all these things like that. Many of you have a wonderful heart for, for helping people and serving people and relieving suffering. There is no shame in selfless service because this is the example of Jesus. This is the example of Jesus who gave himself in serving others. Jesus' leadership was leadership, but it was also leadership in service. And so never think, never feel the need. I'm not saying get be taken advantage of continually because you work yourself to a bone, but never see service as a negative thing. See it as a wonderful way of helping others following the example of Jesus Christ who did the ultimate act of service in giving his life for you. This, here in Acts chapter 6, I will say, is also a picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ from heaven. Jesus descends to the right hand of his Father, and he ministers from heaven. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus reigns from the right hand and gives gifts to his church. He gives apostles. He gives teachers. He gives evangelists. He gives all such gifts to his church that it might be built up. What we see here in Acts chapter 6, Jesus is present. Not physically present, but his goodness and his graciousness and his care for his church. He is the head of the church, Paul says in Colossians 1.18, is seen by giving gifts and servers and leaders to his church that its mission may continue. Jesus is ultimately the one who does this. And so we see in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, the first progress report. I want to read it because I've come to love these little progress reports. There's six of them found in the book of Acts, and it says this, The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That is a progress report. That is an update from Luke, the writer of Acts. This is what is happening. 
The word of God continued to increase. This division and distraction with the widows and the Hellenists and the Hebrews put aside, dealt with. The word of God continued to increase and went forward. Number of disciples multiplied greatly. People were being baptized. People were coming to faith. People were being taught. And amazingly, it says, even priests became obedient to the faith. Not the high priest, the top family that have caused the most trouble at this point, but men like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, priests that worked in service to God at the temple, they are becoming believers. They work at the temple where sacrifices are being made. They came to understand that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who died for us that we might be reconciled to God through faith in his name. This is wonderful. It continues to go in very ordinary ways, in cares for widows, in cares for the suffering, through prayer and through the ministry of the word. Our task remained the same in our context. Three very quick points of application. May God enlarge our hearts to love and care for the suffering. That's the first. May God enlarge our hearts to love and care for the suffering. And I hope that people within this church can begin bringing forward ideas that we can help in greater ways. Too much has been entrusted us. Secondly, may we order and continually order our church that it might reflect God's plan and God's will. This is not our church. It belongs to Him. And thirdly, may we see in this example the resolute need to share, to preach, and to teach the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.